Mark chapter 9, we've been learning about faith and particularly the time of the disciples' lives uh, that they would never forget. Uh, Because after Jesus uh, was crucified and buried and rose again, uh, his disciples would think back on the short time of their lifespan that they were with him uh, personally when he was there in the flesh and when he was performing miracles and teaching and casting out demons and doing all these things, walking on water, they would remember those things very vividly and they would write those things down and they would translate those uh, stories to pass those stories on to the early church and to their disciples and to the people that those people were discipling and on and on and on to where we have the word of God today. But in this particular window of time during their life, uh, Jesus really focused on these 12 men and spent a lot of focused time with them. He decided during this period of his ministry that he was going to try to avoid the big cities because when he would go to a big city, the crowds would swarm him. And, and bring their sick people and their lame and, and their demon-possessed and all this other stuff. And Jesus wanted to focus his time on these twelve because he was about to go to the cross. And this time he spent with them personally was very, very, very important. He taught them about discipleship. What it means to be a disciple. Not just a believer, someone who gives their mental assent... Who, who, who encounters Jesus and says, yes, I believe you are the Son of God. But a disciple is someone who follows Jesus and whom he disciplines. He corrects. He rebukes. He encourages. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so here in Mark chapter 9, we've been learning about this moment when Jesus... Jesus knows, as they're traveling along the way, he knows what some of his disciples are talking about, even though they think they're having a private conversation that he's not privy to. He doesn't know. But he knows, because he's God. He knows what they're talking about. He asks them, what are you talking about? They start talking about, they were, they were talking to themselves about who was, be the, who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Remember, Jesus had talked about the kingdom of God over and over and over. And so they're thinking in terms of human kingdoms and they want to know who's going to be the lieutenant or who's going to be the vice president or the vice chancellor or whatever. Who's going to sit at his right hand? Who's going to be the one beside Jesus? And Jesus teaches them something about the kingdom of God. He says, if you want to be first in the kingdom of God, you will be what? Last. And you will be servant to all. So that means you're at the bottom. The very bottom. You're a servant to everybody else. If you want to be first in the kingdom. That's what this looks like. Then he talks about how they also must have the faith of a child. They have to receive him like a child. And this causes them to think, wow, this this is not what we had in mind. The Messiah we thought was going to overthrow kingdoms and give us the ability to overthrow, to overcome all the obstacles in our life. And now he's telling us that we're going to be the servant of all and we're going to be like children. Servants and children were the two most vulnerable people groups in first century Judea. 
in Israel. The Greek-speaking world, if you're a child, if you're a servant, you're at the bottom of the social ladder. And Jesus is telling his disciples, if you want to be first in the kingdom, if you want to be great, you have to be a child, you have to be a servant. So now all of a sudden they're exposed. They're exposed. Who's going to take care of them? Who's going to look after them, especially if they're a rabbi, if they're a leader, if they're a teacher, is going to the cross? And he's going to be betrayed by one of his friends and turned over. This is what Jesus has already told them. He's already given them the bad news. Hey, this is what's going to happen. So now they feel exposed and Jesus in verse 42, as we looked at last week, if you look there in your Bible, he says, and whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble. Now he's talking about his disciples, but he's comparing them to a child and he has a child there in front of him so the disciples can see what the child looks like. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what you're going to be like. You're going to be like a child. Oh no. But then he says in verse 42. Whoever out there in the world causes one of these little children. And he's talking about his disciples. One of you. To stumble. It would be better if he. If that person. Had a millstone tied around his neck. A large millstone tied around his neck and was tossed into the sea. So now in verse 42, verse 50 is this idea of stumbling. We see that word repeated. So now follow along with me in verse 43 through 50. Jesus says, and if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter a life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter a life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. Where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out. It is better for you to enter to the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Well, before I get all fired up into the meat of the message, I want to show you, I want you to see some places in Scripture that talk about this idea of a stumbling block or a stumbling stone. How many of you, show of hands, have heard someone say, I don't want to be a stumbling block for someone else? Raise your hand. You've heard that. Maybe you said that. Yeah, it's a very common saying among Christians, but it doesn't just come from Paul's New Testament letters. That's usually where we get it. That's usually what we're referring to. In the Old Testament in Ezekiel 18.31... not going to be on the screen, but you can turn in your Bibles there, or you can just write these verses down and look at them later in your own Bible study. Ezekiel 18.31, God says through the prophet to the children of Israel, he tells them to repent and turn away from all your iniquities, or from all your transgressions, so that, he says, iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. 
So here God is warning his own people, if you keep making the same decisions that you're making right now, that is, you're ignoring my word, you're just kind of going on, you know, life as usual, no worries. What's going to happen is you're going to end up stumbling, but, but you're the one who's placed that stumbling block in front of yourself if you don't repent and turn away from your sin. In Jeremiah 6, 19 through 21, Israel rejects God's word and God's law, so God himself tells them that he is going to lay stumbling blocks in front of them. He's going to make their life difficult down the road so that they will stumble and recognize that they need God. That is a great grace of God. He will do that with his children. In Ezekiel 44, 12, the Levitical priests, that is the sons of Levi, those who were charged to uh, take care of the ceremonial part of worship there in the temple, to reflect God's holiness, his character, his law. The Levitical priests in Ezekiel 44, 12 are called a stumbling block of iniquity. Because when the people wanted to worship false idols, the priests not only allowed it, but they went out and ministered to the people the way that God told them to minister to them, but before false idols. So they didn't call them to account. They continued to do their job, just do it for the wrong God. And because they did that, they became a stumbling block for God's people. The very people that God set apart as leaders to serve his people. So leaders can become stumbling blocks as well for the people. When leaders passively allow sin, they actively condone it. This is not in the church, it's also in the family structure, in the home. When parents condone sinful behavior and they just passively allow it, say, I'm just not going to worry about it, I'm not going to mess with it. That's the easy thing to do, right? If you're parenting kids... When you do that, you're actively condoning. You become a stumbling block to the spiritual growth, sometimes the physical and emotional growth of your own kids. In Romans 9, 32 through 33, Paul, the apostle, calls Jesus a stumbling stone. The literal word that's used here is the word scandalon. In all of these instances, the word is scandalon. So for us, we can kind of transliterate that into the word scandal today, Right? A scandalous thing is something that causes people to stumble. Sometimes people lose their jobs because of a scandal. Or they lose relationships because of a scandal. It's something that makes you stumble. And so Paul says in Romans 9 that Jesus, listen to this, is the stumbling stone which the Jews have stumbled over. Jesus was a Jew. Where was he born? Bethlehem. We're going to celebrate that. How many of you have already started listening to Christmas music? Do not raise your hand. Do not raise your hand. There's no judgment here. But in that passage, Paul quotes Psalm 188, well, maybe 118, 22. Behold, I lay in Zion. This is God speaking. Behold, I lay in Zion. This is purposeful. God's doing the work. 
Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You heard that right. God purposefully sent Jesus knowing Jesus was going to be offensive to people. He's going to be offensive to your family, to your friends, to your neighbors. The gospel is offensive. So, that psalm says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Though Jesus is also called, in other places, the chief cornerstone. He's not only the stumbling stone, but he's also the chief cornerstone. He's the cornerstone of every Christian's life. He's the cornerstone of the church. He's the one we build our life upon. But in many places in the New Testament, he is called a, a stone of stumbling. I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine a, a treasure, a stone, a precious stone, a massive diamond. All right? And, and everybody wants this diamond, but there's a particular group of treasure hunters that really want this particular stone. But there's somebody out there, unbeknownst to them, that's already found that stone. And he knows that this team is going to go on this, on this treasure hunt. And he knows what they're looking for. And he wants them to find it. And he takes that stone and he's like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to figure out the trail that they're going on. And I'm just going to go like maybe a hundred yards up the trail. And I'm going to take this stone and I'm just going to bury it halfway under the dirt to where like most of it is showing like an iceberg coming out of the dirt. There's no way they can miss it. The trail is only like 24 inches wide. By the way, my brother-in-law did this with his sons. They were going to go out on a hike and he knows that they like to find cool rocks and arrowheads. And so he bought like three or four arrowheads at a gift shop. And then he went out before they, before they were with him and he, he put them at different places on the trail, just kind of off to the side where they'd have to move some stuff a little bit to find them. And then when they got to a certain point when they were on the hike, he said, hey guys, let's stop here and look around a little bit. Maybe we'll find something. And he said, man, they lit up. They find them and they didn't know that I put them there. I think later in life he told them... Uh, that he had placed them there. But imagine this scenario. They go out on the hike. They, they, they've studied a, countless books about this jewel. They've seen pictures of it. They can't wait to find it. And they're on this hunt. And every single one of them, one by one, stumbles. Hits, have you ever done that? Walk into your kid's room and there are toys on the floor. It's like a booby trap bonanza. Right? I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes when I trip over stuff, the older that I get, I grab it and I throw it across the room. If you're wanted to do that. Imagine every one of these treasure hunters hitting that stone with their foot and falling down and getting mad and grabbing it and throwing it off the side of the cliff. And anger and frustration. The New Testament says that that's what the Jews did with Jesus. His own countrymen. They were looking for the Messiah and he was right there in front of them. And they rejected him. They tossed him aside. He was a stone of, some, uh, of stumbling. In Romans 14, 13, the Bible says that it defines what walking in Christian love means. If you're going to walk in Christian love with your brothers and sisters in Christ, it means this, to be determined... Never to knowingly place a stumbling block in front of them. 
So that word stumbling block is used there in Romans 14, 13, where the Bible teaches us how we're to live as Christians. In 1 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul warns Christians that their liberty, you know, our rights, our liberty in Christ, we sing about our freedom in Christ, right? We're free from the law. We're free from sin. But sometimes our Christian liberty can become, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, a stumbling block to the weak. There are believers all around you who are not as spiritually mature as you are. And the more that you mature, the more cognizant you need to be that there are other believers around you who will stumble. They will stumble because they see you living a certain way and they don't understand it. They don't get it. In Galatians 5.11, Paul says that the message of the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews and that at this time in his life, he's being persecuted by his Jewish countrymen because he forsook a life of legalism and embraced the message of the cross, a message that he calls a stumbling block to the legalistic Jews. And then finally, in Revelation 18, 20 through 24, John sees in his revelation... He sees an angel take a great stone like a millstone, the Bible says, and tosses it into the sea, very reminiscent of what Jesus says here, tosses it into the sea, and he says, thus will be Babylon, the great city. It will be thrown down with violence and it will not be found any longer. He goes on to say that the sound of the mill will not be heard in you any Longer. We look at verse 42 here where Jesus says it'd be better for a man to have a millstone hung around his neck and tossed into the sea if he causes any of these little ones to stumble. A millstone was a sign of life and sustenance. That's why in Revelation, John says he sees this angel tossing the millstone into the water. It, it signified the end of prosperity, the end of life, the end of sustenance for Babylon. Now the Bible makes it very clear that sometimes other people can be stumbling blocks, obstacles to your salvation. But what Jesus specifically pinpoints in this passage, verse 43 through 50, is the fact that as long as you are clothed in skin, as long as you are this side of heaven, there will always be one person on this earth who threatens to stand in your way to everlasting life. And that's you. The stakes are high. For faith in Christ, the stakes are high because you can run from other people. You can hide from other people. But you can't. Run and hide from yourself. You will always have the potential of causing yourself to stumble. It will always be the case. And so Jesus goes from talking about someone, whoever, he, him, in verse 42, 
to now in verse 43 on, shifting the focus to you. If your hand causes you to stumble, if your feet cause you to stumble, if your eye causes you to stumble, what do I do? What do I do? The first thing that we notice in today's passage is that the stakes of faith in Christ are high because of your own personal value. The stakes are high when it comes to your faith in Christ because of your own personal value. Notice what he says back in chapter 8 verse 36. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What would you give? What, what, what possibly could be as valuable as your soul? I don't think this is because I'm a philosophical type. I really don't. But when I was about... Eight or nine years old. It was around the time. It was right before I was baptized. Before I became a Christian. I remember. I thought to myself. I was alone. In, in, in my room alone. And I remember thinking. Contemplating my own self. Thinking. Huh. I wonder what happens to me when I die. I knew as a seven year old. That what I saw in the mirror. Was not all that there was to me. I knew there was more. What I see is not like who I am. It's like my clothing, right? It's, it's, my, it's my earth clothing. I knew there was something more. I didn't know all of what the Bible said about the human soul or what philosophy said about the dichotomy of the human soul and the, and the body. I, I didn't know all those things. But I knew this. I knew that I had personal value that stretched beyond my hands and my feet and my face. And what I looked like in the mirror. I knew there was more to me than that. Jesus says here in this passage, he says three times, it's better for you. Now in verse 42 he says, it's better for this man if X, Y, and Z. But when he gets to verse 43, he talks about what's better for us. What's better for you. It's better for you. If you make this type of decision. Why? Because God knows your value. God knows your value. Do you know your value? Do you know your value like God knows your value? Do you value your own soul more than stuff? A sign of how much God values you is not in how much earthly treasure he is willing to give you. Some, some people think that way, right? When we talk about blessing, God has is, God is sure blessed this person or that person. God has sure blessed me. God sure values me because of the stuff. We look around at the stuff. Maybe the things that we think he's given to us. But that's not how God or how we should measure our value. But sometimes we do. We try to measure God's Blessing with the currency of stuff. This is a challenge for us as human beings. 
If possessing more stuff has the tendency to cause more stumbling in our lives, why would we blame God for giving those things to us? Let's be honest, most of the stuff that we call blessings are things that we wanted, that we coveted, and that we worked hard to go after and get. Right? Those are our things, our toys, our stuff. Many times, we get those things and we find that they don't bring us closer to God. In fact, they hinder our walk with God and jeopardize our entering into life. He uses that phrase two times. Enter into life. Enter the kingdom of God. You see that repeated three times here. This is what Jesus is emphasizing. He knows our value. He knows what's best for us. Sometimes we go out and we get things that actually end up being stumbling blocks. We get those things for ourselves and we call them blessings and we give God the credit and then we put it in front of us and we stumble over those things, things that make it difficult for us to enter into life. And sadly, there will be many so-called blessed people we find in Scripture. Jesus talks about it. There will be many so-called blessed people who forfeit eternal life because they're not willing to part with their precious stuff. Don't be one of them. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Have God's perspective on things and value yourself more than your stuff. Now, people deceive themselves into this scenario because they don't value themselves as much as God does. God knows our true personal value. And he warns us not to be deceived by earthly stuff. He tells us to live a disciplined life in community with other Christ followers. To be disciplined, to allow them to speak into your life and to say things like, is this helping you? Is this really a blessing? It might be a stumbling block. Do you know your true personal value? People who you surround yourself with in the church and the Christian community who know your value and who want you to enter into life more than anything else. Do you have friends like that? That are willing to tell you hard things? That's who the church is supposed to be for one another. To be able to tell each other hard things. Why? Because we value the things that God values. We value most the things that God values most. Do you value the people sitting next to you, in front of you, and behind you? Do you value their soul more than anything else? Knowing our personal value is difficult because of our flesh. Our fleshly nature makes it difficult for us to value ourselves the way that God values us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. It's too bad, isn't it? We have this treasure, this soul, the gospel applied to our lives in earthen vessels. I used to be in construction. And I loved buying tools. Can I get an amen, brothers in the house? Yeah. Good stuff. Tools. I'm not in that industry anymore, so 
I have to do a lot of arm twisting and convincing to justify getting a good tool. But imagine if you had a Hilti hammer drill. Mmm, good stuff. You had a Hilti hammer drill and you decided you're going to wrap it in Walmart bags and set it in the back of your truck when you're not using it. Is that really a good idea? No. No. You know what comes with a Hilti hammer drill if you buy one? A big, huge, hard case. And there's a latch and there's a place for a lock. You can put a lock through there. Why? Because of the value of what you're putting inside the box. And Hilti and all these other manufacturers, they, will, they won't even sell you the tool without the box. Because it would be an insult to your intelligence. It would be an insult to their tool. Because they know the value of what they're selling you. So they put it in this big, hard box. And if you're smart, you won't just put that, that big box in the back of your truck, man. But what will you do? You'll put it in your toolbox that's bolted to your truck, which also has latches and locks and all those other things. Why? Because you know the value. You know the value of what's inside. The problem with us as human beings is that because of the fall, many years ago in the garden, our bodies are not fit to house our souls. Because of sin. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. The treasure is your soul redeemed by the blood of Christ on the cross. And now that in Him you have been crucified and raised, this world, the Bible even says, is not worthy of your soul. That's how valuable you are to God. Now in Christ. If we go to the book of Hebrews, we see how Paul lists the names of the great Old Testament saints in Hebrews 11. He says that because of their persevering faith in Christ, they were, quote, people of whom the world was not worthy. The world is not worthy of your soul. You may think they were millionaires, tech giants, viral influencers, inventors, but they were not. Those people that Paul lists in Hebrews 11 were not those types of people that you would see in the headlines. Conversely, they were the great unknown. Unknown people. Unknown figures. Wanderers living in caves and holes in the ground, he says. And the evidence of their faith, listen to this, was their poverty, their pain, their perseverance. That is, their refusal to be controlled by the world's stuff. The world and all of its stuff is unworthy of trading your soul. Do you know your personal worth? Jesus tells us here in Mark's gospel what is better for you. It is better for you that you enter into life no matter what it costs. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus and value yourself over your stuff. The second thing that we notice, the stakes are high because of your personal value, but the stakes are high also because of time. We see the concept of time Jesus talks about here. In verse 43, 45, and 47, we see this repetition. If your hand causes you, if your foot causes you, if your eye causes you, these are all in the present active subjunctive. Present active. If it causes you now, now is the time to make this decision. Because there's coming an expiration date on your ability 
to judge yourself and discipline yourself and surround you with people who are going to help you do that. Who are going to help you cross the finish line. There's an expiration date. If these things cause this now, now is the time to deal with it. Today. In Romans 13, 11 through 14, Paul says that the way that we make decisions as Christians about how we're to live our life, we are to have an urgency. In Romans 13, 11, do this knowing the time. That it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day. Now. Right now. In Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, Paul says, Let us lay aside every encumbrance that so easily entangles us as we run this race. See, that's the thing about a race. A race has a starting line and it has a what? A finish line. It's teleological. History is teleological. It's heading to a destination. It's linear. It's not cyclical. A lot of people like to say, well, that's going to come around. It's going to come back around to bite you. Karma. You know, things happen in cycles. Life does not happen in cycles. We make the same mistakes because we're all stupid. All right? We're human beings. We just do that. But time itself is heading to a direction. And there's a destination. There's an end point. And we are all somewhere along that line. It's a race. There's a finish line. How will you finish? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 23 through 25, he tells us to run in such a way that we might what? Win. Win. And he says, we as Christians, we don't, we don't run for a perishable wreath. Back then in the Olympics, they would give the winners a wreath made out of real garland, real plants. What happens to that over time? Yeah, it, it dries out and fades. You throw it in the trash, it's no good anymore. That's why today when you get a trophy, it's like, you know, fake gold or platinum or something like that. Something you can hang on your wall and it lasts for a long time. He says, we're not like the world. We're not like people in the world who are running some type of race. Maybe it's the rat race at work. Maybe it's the religious race. But people in the world are running a race and all they get is something that is perishable. You name it. Anything that you get this side of heaven that the world offers, offers you, the Bible says, moth and rust can destroy it. Thieves can break in and, and, and steal it. You can't take it with you. Nothing in this world lasts forever. It's different than your soul. It's different than the life that God wants you to enter. There's an end to every race and there's an end to every life. The stakes are high for your souls, for our souls, because your dress rehearsal has an expiration date. 
I don't know when your day will come, but it will. You don't know when your day will come, but it will. And the stakes are high for what you do. How you live today in this life. Because tomorrow comes with relentless certainty. Another thing we learn here in this passage about time. He mentions Gehenna. Hell. This is the destination. This is the end. For those who don't enter into life. You either enter into life. Or you enter into hell. That word Gehenna is a compound word. Gehenom refers to the valley of Hinnom. You can learn about this as far back in the times of Josiah in the Old Testament. It was the valley along the south side of Jerusalem where in Old Testament times, human sacrifices, people would sacrifice their children to the false god Moloch. It was a place of death and destruction and fire. And it had been for centuries. In the New Testament time, it was a place where garbage, human excrement, including dead animal carcasses, were disposed of and burned. It was a horrible place. Its fires never went out. And the worm there never died. Because of what was placed there and because of the purpose of that place. So Jesus gives a real life illustration, a real place that they can see, but he's referring to another real place that exists in eternity. Where the wicked dwell and where all souls who do not receive Christ as Savior will be. Time is of the essence for human souls because of all the enjoyments of blessing and blessings of living in God's spectacular world it will all come to an end and every moment that you have that every human soul has to live in this in this world even though it's fallen and it's broken at every corner there's God's grace there's no corner of the world that you can go to where you escape God's grace even in the darkest places of the world you can find God's grace God is omnipresent When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fiery furnace, who was there? God was there. In every place in your life, you may think, I don't feel like God is here with me. He is. You're not in that place yet. But there is a place that is completely devoid of the grace of God where where souls cannot find a drop of cold water. To satisfy themselves. But they cannot find any of God's mercy or his grace. And that place Jesus describes here. It is hell. It is a possible destination because time is linear. All of time is heading to eternity. And there are two options. There are two places Life, Jesus says it here. He's giving a comparison. Life or hell? Enter into life or enter into hell? Oh, let, let not the trappings of the world or your own body parts, hands, feet, eyes, let those things not hinder you. Let those things not cause you to stumble. 
The challenge for us today is that we live in the Disney generation where every story has a happy ending. The doctrine of hell, they would say, is for fanatics. Those Christians are just trying to scare you. They can get you into their church. You can help them send their kids to camp. (laughs) So they can indoctrinate more fanatics. This is why they have to have that doctrine of hell. No, Jesus is very clear here. Very clear. That hell is real and it's coming for every person who undervalues their soul. And underestimates God's love, His holiness, and His righteousness. Not only is it real, but it is unrelenting and it is eternal. And then finally and lastly. The stakes of faith are high because of the reward. Enter life. Enter the kingdom of God, Jesus says. See, we we underestimate, it's one of our weaknesses as human beings, we underestimate the value of what's important. Not only about ourself, but about our future. And just about things in life. Because of the rapid acceleration of time, intrinsic to modern life, we often turn to technological development to make our lives simpler, more convenient. Silicon Valley determines our speed of life. They tell us how fast to go. And we go at that rate. They tell us how fast to go, then Silicon Valley also sells us all the tools to keep up. It's funny how that works. But they also keep us addicted with constant upgrades. (laughs) So we never get behind. And we allow being controlled like this because we think that technology will buy us more time. Because we value time, don't we? We value time, we value goodness, and so we just, we just keep shelling out cash. But it inevitably starves us of more time, doesn't it? More importantly for Christians is that it dupes us into thinking unimportant things in life are actually vitally important. Let me ask you an interesting question. What things have you convinced yourself that you need to have today that if we were to rewind 50 years, you would not really need? 50 years? 100 years? What would you put on that list? What are the things that we think that we cannot live without that so consume our attention that we don't think about our eternal soul as much as this thing or that thing? It consumes us. It consumes our time so that we're not in the Word every day. We don't pray. We're not in fellowship with other believers. We're not feeding our souls on a regular basis because we think something else is so vitally important could be tools, it could be ways of life. Touchscreen laptops, iPads, smartphones, cordless tools, Netflix, Whole Foods. I Many people who are like, ah, I can't eat anywhere, but I can't shop anywhere at Whole Foods or Sprouts. Like, okay, let's rewind 50 years. I guess you'd have to have a farm. <laughs> Internet. What would you do without the internet? You'd be okay. 
more importantly, your soul would be okay. That's what you should value above everything else. How many toys do you have at home that you think you can't live without, that you can't part from? What kind of things do you pay for? Subscriptions, toys, things you think that you need to have that have impacted the way you give to your local church that is in the very business of souls. Reaching the nations across the world, reaching our community, feeding each other the gospel. But you don't give, or you don't give regularly, or you don't give sacrificially because you're so addicted to stuff and you've valued things more than human souls. Jesus refers to hands, feet, and eyes. These were vital things to a first century person. Your feet would carry you from point A to point B to work. Your hands, that's how, you, that's how you made a living. Your eyes, so you can see where you're going and who you're communicating with and, and so you can read. I wonder what things he would use today. Maybe the same. Now these are three things, hands, eyes, and feet, that were very important to a first century audience. But what does Jesus say here? He says, these are not vitally important. Oh no. You can lose a hand. You can lose a foot, you can lose an eye. These aren't vital organs. What are the vital organs? Heart, lungs, brain, kidneys, pancreas, intestines. <laughs> this is what you have to have. But you don't have to have a hand. Jesus says, Do not let the unnecessary things keep you from entering life. Don't let it happen. The reward is too great. It's too great to miss. It's too great to exchange for all of these other silly things in life that you think are necessary. And Jesus is saying that now, right now is the time to give an honest appraisal of your life. Are there hindrances? Think about that. Are there hindrances? Maybe as you're reading through this or as you hear us kind of listing some things, maybe something stands out in your mind. The Holy Spirit said, here's a problem for you. Name it. Write it down. Hold yourself accountable to it. Give that information to another brother and sister in Christ. Maybe to your spouse. Maybe to your mom, dad, husband, wife. And say, I think this is a problem for me. Are there hindrances? Are there stumbling stones in your path? Are there encumbrances that so easily entangle you over and over and over again? Are there things that keep tripping you up in your walk with God? Lay it aside. Lay it aside. Enlist help from other brothers and sisters. Swallow your pride. Be open. Be honest. We all have sin. The Bible says that if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. A mark of spiritual maturity, this side of heaven, is not getting to a place where you're, not a sin, where you're not a sinner. You will always be a sinner, this side of heaven. A mark of spiritual maturity is coming to the place where you acknowledge that, yes, I'm a sinner, and you say, yes, I need your help. Brother, sister, church family. Will you do that today?
What are some things you think you need to have that hinder the advancement of the gospel and the growth of Christ's church? Name it. Put it on the altar. Be crucified to Christ. Take all of your stuff. Appraise it. All of your life. Because the stakes 